If you have your Bibles, please turn with me to Colossians chapter 1. Uh, we just recently took a short three-week break from the book of Colossians to celebrate the 500th anniversary of the Reformation of Luther um, putting his um, 95 Thesis on the door. Um, and so now we're going to be picking back up in Colossians where we left off. So we're going to be in verses 15 through 17 of Colossians chapter 1, and that is found on page 983 of the, the Bible in the seat in front of you if you are using that. And while you're turning there, I have three uh, chunks of scripture that I, I want to just quickly read through this morning before we get into our passage. And, and I think they're, um, they're, they're going to be on the screen and you can follow along there, so turn in Colossians. Um, but all three passages that we're going to read, they have something in common. And so as we read through them this morning, I want you to pay attention and see if you can notice um, the similar theme running through these passages. The first one is Mark 4, starting in verse 35, where it says, On that day when evening had come, he, and this is referring to Jesus, said to them, Let us go across to the other side. And leaving the town, they took him with them in the boat, just as he was. And other boats were with him. And a great windstorm arose, and the waves were breaking into the boat, so that the boat was already filling. But he was in the stern, asleep on the cushion. And they woke him and said to him, Teacher, do you not care that we are perishing? And he awoke and rebuked the wind and, and said to the sea, Peace, be still." And the wind ceased, and there was a great calm. He said to them, Why are you so afraid? Have you still no faith? And they were filled with great fear and said to one another, Who then is this that even the wind and the sea obey him? And then moving along into Luke chapter 5, uh, starting in verse 17. On one of those days, as he, and again this is talking about Jesus, as Jesus was teaching Pharisees and teachers of the law were sitting there who had come from every village of Galilee and Judea and from Jerusalem, and the power of the Lord was with him to heal. And behold, some men were bringing on a bed a man who was paralyzed, and they were seeking to bring him in and lay him down before Jesus. But finding no way to bring him in because of the crowd, they went up on the roof and let him down with his bed through the tiles in the midst uh, before Jesus." And when he saw their faith, he said, Man, your sins are forgiven. And the scribes and Pharisees began to question, saying, Who is this who speaks blasphemies? Who can forgive sins but God alone? And then finally, a couple chapters later in Luke chapter 9, it says, starting in verse 7, Now Herod the Tetrarch heard about all that was happening, and he was perplexed, because it was said by some that John had been raised from the dead. By some that Elijah had appeared, and by others that one of the prophets of old had risen. Herod said, John I beheaded, but who is this about whom I hear such things? And he sought to see him. So as we, as we read through these um, passages, and there's more in scripture um, like this, do, do you notice uh, the, the theme that, that, that appears in each of these passages? In each passage... People, those around Jesus are asking one of the simplest and yet one of the most significant questions that anyone could ever ask. Who is this man? So much rides 
on that question. If you get the answer to that question wrong, then you're going to get everything wrong. And, and as I was thinking about that question this week, I, I got a little bit curious because I have a lot of um, uh, co-workers and friends who um, are not uh, Christians. Um, and so I, I was curious to to, to find out what they believe about Jesus. And so I, I have a co-worker who's the Jehovah's Witness, and, and so I asked her who she thought Jesus was or is. And I, and I found out that, that Jehovah's Witnesses, they believe that Jesus, he's actually the incarnation of Michael, the archangel. He's a created being. He's not divine in nature. They, they take Jesus literally in John chapter 14, where he says, the Father is greater than I and this means that they do not worship Jesus and they do not believe that he is God. And, and this has major implications for their worldview. I also thought as I, as I, I spent the, the year 2016 over in Albania and I had a lot of um, interaction with uh, Muslims and, 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 I, and I thought about some of my, um, what they, how they would answer this question. And, and the Muslim would say that Jesus, he is not God but only a prophet of God. And as a matter of fact, he's not even the greatest of the prophets. Muhammad, who came hundreds of years later, was the greatest prophet. And they would also say that Jesus didn't actually die on the cross. So the, the, the people, they thought that they were crucifying Jesus, uh, but they never killed him. Instead, God took him up into heaven uh, before his crucifixion, and, and he was replaced um, and so people thought that he was uh, being crucified, but he was not. And, and, and as you think about others in your life, you know, some might say that Jesus is just a good role model, or, or they say he's a great teacher. Some, some think of him as a, a buddy who loves us no matter what we do and accepts us for who we are. Some, some use Jesus as a good luck charm. If, if I just follow Jesus, he's going to make my life Better. He's going to make my life great. Everything that I ever wanted will be mine. Everyone has an opinion of Jesus. And that opinion, it is extremely significant. Because on your answer to that question, who is this man, hangs the difference between life and death, between heaven and hell, truth and falsehood, between humility and self-righteousness. And so this is what we're going to be looking at over uh, this week, and we're going to get into it also um, next week. Who is this man? And we don't want to just create our own opinion about Jesus, but we want to look to the scriptures to see what they say about Jesus. Jesus. And Colossians 1, the passage that we're going to be in this morning, provides for us perhaps the most um, in-depth and clearest picture of who Jesus is in all of Scripture. And to be honest, each verse in and of itself could be a sermon. We don't have time to, to unpack all of the depths of this passage because it's packed full of truth about Christ. But I think as we look, about it, look at it, we're going to see some of the main themes that run through the passage. And so as we read the text this morning, we need to ask ourselves, who is this man? And so I want you to look with me at Colossians chapter 1, starting in verse 15. It says, He is the image of the invisible God, 
the firstborn of all creation. For by him all things were created, in heaven and on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or dominions or rulers or authorities. All things were created through him and for him. And he is before all things, and in him all things hold together. This is God's word. And now let's pray uh, that the Spirit will give us wisdom in understanding and applying it to our hearts. Father, as we look at this uh, passage of Scripture and as we uh, dig into the truth and reality of who Christ is, may it cause our hearts to be stirred with affection for Christ. May it cause us to increase in our faith and increase in our confidence that Christ indeed is Lord over all. Father, there's so much going on in this world that, that can shift our focus off of Christ and cause us to, to wonder if Christ really does have all of this under his control. And yet, as we look at this passage this morning and as we talk about Christ, may, may, we, may we see clearly that indeed he is Lord over all and he is in control of all things. By him, all things hold together. Father, open our eyes to see the beauty of Christ. If there's anybody here this morning who is not trusting in Christ, Father, we pray that you would reveal to, to them the glorious Christ. Not only the Christ who is Lord over all, but the Christ who saves. The Christ who, who came to this earth to die for our sins so that we might be united to God. Father, reveal these things to us, we pray. And we pray them in Christ's name. Amen. Now, as we look at this passage, there's a, there's a lot going on here and we're going to have to work through some difficulties. There's some things that come up in the passage that can be a bit confusing. But before we get there, I just want to lay out what I think is, is the main theme of the passage. And then we'll start working through it. So in answering the question of who Jesus is, our passage this morning deals primarily with Jesus as Lord over all creation. And the, and the clue that we see to that. Uh, is found in verse 15, where Christ is declared as the firstborn of all creation. Now, we're going to have to work through what that means exactly, but ultimately, verses 15 through 17, they revolve around that phrase. And, and if it's true that Jesus is Lord over all creation, this has massive implications for how we walk through life as believers. But before we get to the implications, I think we, it's helpful to just work through the entire passage. So keep the theme of Christ as Lord over creation in mind. And we're going to start in verse 15, where it says, He is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn of all creation. Now, when, as we look at these, this verse, there are two statements being made about Jesus here. And they're both revealing something to us about Christ. And together they reveal to us the truth that Jesus is Lord over creation. But one of the statements, it can also be a bit confusing at first. And so what I want to do is I want to work, uh, I want to start with the easier of the two. And then uh, we'll get to, to the, the more confusing statement um, where Jesus is... Um, described as the firstborn of all creation. So right now we're going to start with Jesus as the image of the invisible God. 
And as we think about that, John 1, verse 18, it, it teaches clearly that no one has seen God. 1 Timothy 6 also agrees with this and, and teaches this, but it also adds that not only has no one seen God, but they cannot see him. Even here in, in Colossians 1, 15, God is described as the invisible God. And so scripture, uh, we find it in various places within scripture that God is, he's spirit, and it teaches that because of that, uh, he cannot be seen. And, and, and so as we think about that, um, it could cause us to wonder how we are able to know this God if we're not able to see him. How can we know someone who has not been seen? And yet, here in this passage, Jesus is described as being the image of the invisible God. And the word translated image here. It, rever- it refers to a visible representation or likeness of something. So Jesus is the visible representation of the invisible God. Now, the, the question that flows from that is, to what extent does Jesus represent God? We see that Jesus is a visible representation, but what does that include? And the passage, I think, if we just uh, pay attention, it provides the answer to this. It's subtle, and, and it could be easy to miss, but, um, but I think we find the answer within the verse itself. Notice what verse 15 says exactly. It does not say that Jesus is in the image of God. It says that Jesus is the image of God. If you were to go through the whole of Scripture— No one but Jesus is ever described as being the image of God. We as human beings are described as being in the image of God, but we are never described as being the image of God. And if you look elsewhere in Scripture, you see that there are other uh, places where this is clearly supported. Hebrews 1, verse 3, it supports the claim about Jesus by saying, He is the radiance of the glory of God and the exact imprint of his nature. In John 14, 8 through 9, Philip is asking Jesus to show them the Father, and Jesus replies by saying, uh, whoever has seen me has seen the Father. And so in this tiny phrase, we find that Jesus is everything that the Father is. He is the exact representation. He is everything except for actually being the Father. The same attributes, deity, power, glory that resides in the Father resides in Jesus, who is the eternal Son. And so right off the bat, Paul, he's setting Jesus up as being God himself. Jesus is God. But then as we continue in verse 15, uh, we run into what might appear to be a problem. Because in the very next statement, Paul, it almost appears as if Paul destroys his own argument about Christ's deity. He says, Jesus is the image of the invisible God. And then he says, the firstborn of all creation. Do you see what might appear to be a problem here? Jesus is the image of God, but he's also the firstborn of creation. So which is he? Is he God the creator or is he this created being? And and I don't want to spend too much time uh, here, but we need to work through some potential confusion in this 
uh, in this phrase. Because verse 15, it's actually, it's been used against me, and I know it's, it's, it's used often um, as, as an argument to disprove Christ's deity. I, 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 was, uh, ha- I had lunch one time with, with, again, some Jehovah's Witnesses, and this was the go-to passage for them to show me that Christ could not be God because the verse says that he was created. They'll, they'll admit, they'll, they will admit that he is the firstborn of creation or, or that he was the first created being, but they still hold to the argument that this verse teaches he is a created being and therefore he is not God. Now, I, I don't want to take too much time setting up a, uh, this massive apologetic argument, but what I want to do is to help you understand the passage in at least one of three ways. I think it's helpful because it, it, it shows us how Scripture interpret, interprets and explains Scripture. And this is, this is important for us as believers, okay, to see how the Scriptures um, explain and interpret themselves. And so we're going to look at three quick arguments Um, as we seek to understand what the verse is actually saying. We're not going to spend too much time in any of them, but but I hope you can see um, some of the reasoning behind as we work through these. So the first argument revolves around the translation of the phrase, uh, firstborn of all creation. So if you look up the phrase in the original Greek, uh, scholars uh, teach that the phrase could also be translated firstborn over all creation. Not firstborn of creation, but firstborn over all creation. And and this would imply that Christ is over all of creation rather than simply uh, the first created being. Now, this is a good argument, but it still doesn't doesn't tell us which way we should interpret it, which way we should translate it. Um, So so that leads us into the second argument, which, which deals primarily with our understanding of the word firstborn. Elsewhere in the Bible... Firstborn, it can be used to portray um, status or, or rank. And we see this clearly in Psalm 89. There, there's other places in Scripture, but I just want to look at one. Um, and, and I think this is a perfect example because um, in this psalm, it's talking about the kingship of David. But it's also looking forward and pointing forward to the kingship of Christ. And so within this psalm, it's referring ultimately and pointing forward to Christ. And it says... Here in this passage, and I will make him the firstborn, the highest of the kings of the earth. And so if you see the, if you notice the word firstborn in this passage here, it's it's not speaking about being created as a being, but instead is speaking about a position of authority. All over scripture, we, we find that the firstborn son uh, of a family, it, they have special rights, they have special authority because they are firstborn. We, we find this all over uh, the Bible. And so Colossians 1, it can be seen as referring to Christ's status. Not, n- not that he was a created being, firstborn, first created being, but that he is firstborn in status. He is over all creation. Now, if that still doesn't... Um, uh, convince you that this is how the verse should be taken. This moves us into the third argument about this phrase. And and this is my my favorite argument. I think uh, it just brings everything together and and, um, 
And so the reason that we know to understand the phrase firstborn of all creation as, as referring to Christ's status, it's found in the very next verse. And this is, this is what I love about this argument. And you can use this. Uh, I used this when I was talking to uh, the, the Jehovah's Witnesses who were trying to convince me from this passage. Um, I, I love this argument because so many false views of Scripture could be undone by simply telling somebody, Keep reading. Yes, Colossians 1.15. It might appear at first to be teaching something uh, that, that could be a bit confusing. But keep reading. Because biblical arguments are very rarely laid out fully in a single verse. And yet, so many people try to point to a, one specific verse and say, Look, this proves everything. And yet, what I would say to those trying to use Colossians 1 uh, as an argument that Christ is not God, that he is a created being, is keep reading. And so let's keep reading. After declaring Christ as the firstborn of all creation, verse 16 tells us why. Why he is, he is called the firstborn. What makes Jesus the firstborn of all creation? Verse 16, for by him all things were created. So let me, let me, we're going to stop right there and let me just summarize Paul's argument here. Because all things were created by Christ, he is over all things. He has all the rights. He has all the authority over creation. This is the, Paul, this, this is the argument that Paul is making in these verses. And, and as we continue in verses 16 and 17, uh, those verses, the next verses are going to expound upon that argument. But here we clearly see why is he the firstborn? For by him, because by him all things were created. And so let's continue in, in, in verses 16 and 17 uh, to work through um, the, the argument that Paul is making here in these verses. Verse 16, it says, For by him all things were created in heaven and on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or dominions or rulers or authorities. All things were created through him and for him. And he is before all things, and in him all things hold together. Now, as, as you read that, I want you to listen to how uh, he, he words things here. He says, By him... All things were created. All things were created through him and for him. And lastly, he says, in him, all things hold together. Therefore, because of this, he is Lord over all of creation. So when it comes to creation, I want you to think of Jesus as the designer but not only is he the designer, he's the architect and the builder. And not only is he the builder, but he's also the maintainer and sustainer. Creation was his idea. It was his design. And because of that, all things exist for him. Now, there's a, a Dutch theologian, uh, Abraham Kuyper, um, who who paraphrase this concept a lot better than I ever could. And so I, I just want to read to you what he says um, uh, in regards to this 
Jesus being Lord over creation. He says, no single piece of our mental world is to be hermetically sealed off from the rest. And there's not a square inch in the whole domain of our human existence over which Christ, who is sovereign over all, does not cry, mine. As you think about that, and as you go about your day, as you go about your week, I want you to think about that. As you go about your week, there is nothing that you will see in creation this week that was not created by Christ, through Christ, and for Christ. And nothing is held together apart from Christ. And yet, we often spend our day, we spend our week as if all of creation exists for us. We look around at the world around us and think of how all things should be serving my needs and my desires. Yet I want you to hear me clearly. What is being said in this passage? You were created by Christ. You were created through Christ. And you were created for Christ. And your life is sustained by his hand, even as you sit here this morning in your seat. What a humbling reality that you are completely and totally dependent upon Christ to keep your heart breathing, beating, to keep your lungs breathing. What a humbling thought to think that life is not about you. As much as you think that it is at times, you are not the center of the universe. You were created for another. You are a creature and you are created for someone else's glory. You exist for Christ. He is the reason, the goal, the aim, the purpose of all of creation, and that includes each and every one of us this morning. Now, as we think about this, I want to, I want to create what might appear at first to be a problem and then work through it, because although we don't always stop to think about it, we interact with this reality all of the time in our lives, and we need to know what's going on in those moments. And so, uh, as I as I was um, thinking about this concept of Christ being Lord over all creation, uh, I came across Hebrews uh, chapter two. And so, I want you to look with me at Hebrews two. So, we've just seen from Colossians one that Jesus is over all things as the Lord of creation. Nothing is outside of his control, and everything in creation was created for him. And yet, in Hebrews, we we find um, something that might be a little bit confusing. In in chapter two, verse seven through nine, we we read something uh, interesting. It says, "You made him Jesus." Uh, For a little while lower than the angels, you have crowned him with glory and honor, putting everything in subjection under his feet. Now, in putting everything in subjection to him, he left nothing outside of his control. Okay, so as as we read through this so far, no issues. We're tracking with Colossians 1. But then the writer of Hebrews says this in the rest of uh, uh, of the verse. He says, at present, we do not yet see everything in subjection to him. Now, can you see where this might be 
a little bit confusing, where it might cause some issues. We read in Colossians 1 that Jesus is over all things. He's the Lord over creation. But then we look around at the world and see the effects of sin and wickedness. And, and what do we do with that? What do we do when this reality, it hits close to home? Because it's not usually hard to believe that Jesus is Lord over creation until something in creation throws us a curveball. When the reality of death or, or destruction or brokenness hits us. The writer of Hebrews here, he's speaking about a very profound reality. How can all things be in subjection to Christ, which is true, and yet we do not see everything in subjection to him? It is in this reality that we live our lives. There is a tension between the way life is and the way that it should be. And this, this is something that theologians have called the already not yet. Everything is already in subjection to Christ. Christ is indeed Lord over all of creation. And yet, at the same time, we do not yet experience that reality perfectly. And so, when we see on the news a couple weeks ago that a man drives his truck down the road, mowing down a dozen citizens on the streets of Manhattan, or, or, or last week with the, the recent shooting at, at the church down in Texas, or, or when we watch a friend walk out on his wife for another woman, or, or when our health goes down the drain, or, or when a massive hurricane wipes out an entire city. There's a tension there, and we're, and we're right to struggle with the tension that this is not what life is supposed to be, but the tension is real, and we feel it. And so we have to do something about that as we think about Christ being Lord over all creation. Christ is Lord over all creation. Yes, amen. Colossians teaches that. Hebrews 2, right here, the passage we just read, teaches that. And we should believe it. But how do we respond when we are faced with the tension? And I don't think we always even know what's going on inside of our hearts in those moments when creation doesn't appear to be under the control of Christ. We can often find ourselves wondering, how can Christ be in control of all things when so much is going on wrong around us? And in those moments, there's a temptation for us to respond and we, and we, we, we are tempted to respond in one of two ways. We're either tempted to quit as we're overcome by the reality of the way things are versus how they should be. And so we think that thing, uh, things aren't going how they should, so God must really not have things under control. And so what's the point? And we just give up. Or we are tempted to try to fix things ourselves because we have lost sight of the fact that Christ is indeed Lord over all creation. If God doesn't appear to be in control, then maybe I should take the reins. We think that obviously God can't be trusted. We are tempted in these directions when we're faced with the tension. But there is a third option, and the writer of Hebrews gets at this. And so we're going to exercise that argument that I used earlier. Just keep reading. So yes, it is true that in many ways... We do not yet see everything in subjection to Christ. 
But the writer of Hebrews continues in the very next verse. He says, we may not yet see everything in subjection to Jesus, but we do see Jesus. Hebrews 2, 8, we're going to start at the last half of the verse and then go into verse 9. It says, at present, we do not yet see everything in subjection to him, but we see him who for a little while was made lower than the angels, namely Jesus, crowned with glory and honor because of the suffering of death, so that by the grace of God, he might taste death for everyone. How does this reorient us? The author of Hebrews, he's not telling us to ignore the tension. We acknowledge it, but we do so with Christ as the center of our focus. We do not see everything in subjection to him, but we do see him. And we trust that he is in control of all things. The tension should not cause us to quit or to take the reins ourselves. It should cause us to run to Christ who is over all things. Death and destruction are not outside of his power. Although we don't always see what exactly is going on, and how Christ is working in the midst of these things, they are within his control, and they are working towards something. Because he's the one who suffered death, he is the one who stepped into the middle of the ultimate tension that existed between us and God. The tension of sin, the tension of our rebellion. We were the ones at war with him. We were the ones in rebellion to his rule over creation. We were the ones who were enslaved, uh, were enslaved to Satan and without any means of freeing ourselves from the bondage of sin. And we have now been adopted onto the winning side because of Christ. And so while we still endure the tension, while the battle still goes on and creation uh, reveals the effects of that, we do so with hope and with joy that the war is indeed already won. Even though that may mean that we will have to battle for a little while longer. We will have to experience the tension a little longer. As I was uh, looking for an example to illustrate this point, I came across um, uh, a story, the story, the sh- a short retelling of the famous uh, D-Day battle invasion um, that took place uh, during World War II on the beaches of Normandy. And I just want to read this real quick for you. On June 6, 1944, more than 160,000 Allied troops landed along a 50-mile stretch of heavily fortified French coastline to fight Nazi Germany on the beaches of Normandy, France. General Dwight D. Eisenhower called the operation a crusade in which we will accept nothing less than full victory. More than 5,000 ships and 13,000 aircraft supported the D-Day invasion, and by day's end, the Allies gained a foothold in continental Europe. The cost in lives on D-Day was high. More than 9,000 Allied soldiers were killed or wounded, but their sacrifice allowed more than 100,000 soldiers to begin the slow, hard slog across Europe to defeat Adolf Hitler's troops. 
Now, most, as, as most historians think about the D-Day victory, um, they think about it as and describe it as the day that the war was finally won because the Allied forces um, were able to secure a strong foothold in Europe. And yet, even though that's the day that is described as the day the war was won, it took months before Hitler and his troops were ultimately defeated and surrender, surrendered. Battles continued to take place as the Allied forces pushed back the enemy forces. The tension was real. The war was over, but there was still fighting to be done. The Allied forces, as they marched deeper and deeper inland, they fought within the already not yet of the war. The victory was secure, and yet there was still work to do. The enemy had not yet fully surrendered and was putting forth its last-ditch effort to rebel against an army that they knew they could no longer defeat. This is where we live. Christ is Lord over creation. All things are subject to him. And in his work on the cross, he has defeated the, the enemy against him and against creation. He's defeated sin and death and Satan. And yet the battle continues until Christ's return in which he will defeat sin and death once and for all. And we will forever experience his perfect rule and reign over creation. But this does not mean that Christ is not currently over all things. Sometimes we don't see what exactly he is doing, but he is over all things. And so while we wait for that day, while the battle, while the tension continues, while we struggle to live in a culture that is becoming increasingly hostile towards God, we can be tempted to lose sight of the reality of who Christ is. And yet we are reminded in Hebrews and reminded in Colossians that although we do not yet see everything in perfect subjection to Christ, we do see Christ. And so we look to him with hope. We run to him when we feel that tension. We trust in him as Lord over all. All things exist for him. All things will one day fully submit to his sovereign rule and reign. And until that day, we continue to pray, your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. So let's pray that now together. Father, we are so thankful that you have given us Colossians 1. What a beautiful display of who Christ is. All things were created by him, for him, through him, in him, all things hold together. And that has massive implications for how we live our lives. When, the, when we feel the tension, the reality that, yet, uh, that at present, not yet has everything submitted fully to Christ, the battle rages on as, as the forces of evil continue with their last ditch, ditch effort to rebel against God. And yet... Christ is over all. All things are, are subject to him. He is, he is working all things toward the goal where ultimately sin and death will be defeated and he will rule and reign perfectly. 
here on earth as he does in heaven. And so we long for that day. We pray, Lord, come. And yet while we wait, we, we wrestle and we trust in Christ um, as, we, as we face the reality that, that sin is still a very real um, tension in our lives, in creation. The creation groans as it waits for um, the redemption uh, that is to come. And we, uh, we wait for that as well. But as we do that, we look to Christ and we trust in Christ. And so, Father, we are so thankful that you have given us Christ, that you have defeated the ultimate tension of sin and death that was between us and God, and you've brought us into your family, and we can run to you in those moments when it feels like uh, creation is not subject, trusting that it is, and we can rest in you. We pray all these things in Christ's name. Amen.